we'll bring that energy up as we go. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jacob, and I have the privilege of serving on the college team uh, along with all parts of our awesome team, this worship band. Super thankful to be here. And y'all, the past couple of weeks, I have had a question that I have been dying to ask y'all. This is a question. Does anyone know what movie this is? Raise your hand if you know what movie this is. Yeah. This movie, whether you have seen it or you've seen clips of it played at Arkansas Razorback Games, which I'm shocked that they actually play that, uh, it is The Wolf of Wall Street. For those of you who need a recap about The Wolf of Wall Street or who have never seen The Wolf of Wall Street, it is a movie about uh, telling the story of real life events of this guy. His name is Jordan Belfort. In the 80s, he moves to New York City uh, to try to make it big on Wall Street. He wants to be a stockbroker. He has kind of humble beginnings, finds a guy that begins to mentor him in the ways of Wall Street and trading stocks. He eventually begins to learn how to do it really well. He gains some skills. And then he discovers a way to make a lot of money by basically screwing people out of their money. Uh, He starts investing stocks with clients and really defrauding them. And literally the whole movie is about that. It's about his kind of rise to fame and power with the uh, organization that he starts, with the company that he runs, and then all of the lifestyle that goes into basically how they lived. Uh, Jordan Belford, the real Jordan Belford, not Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, has a lot of interviews about how real the movie is. And he's like, yeah, man, all the stuff in that movie, like it's actually pretty accurate. Now, you might be wondering, why the heck is he bringing up the Wolf of Wall Street at a church service? And it's probably because you know that it is an absolutely horrible movie. And hear me say, I'm not promoting this movie by any means. Do not go watch it. It is not good, and it's not good because of things like this. It set the Guinness World Record for the most F-words used in a movie, uh, which was 569 times. That's almost three every minute. Three every minute, it says this. Uh, There's also just drugs galore. Like, that's one of the main little, like, sub-themes throughout the movie is they're, like, just always on drugs. Uh, it's very sexually explicit. It is basically all things immoral wrapped up into a movie. Now, the crazy thing about this movie is that as it was made uh, by a very famous director, it highlights things like greed, lavish lifestyle, materialism, financially defrauding people, ruining people's lives as you do that. Uh, it paints women in a horrible light just as they treat people, uh, immoral personal and professional life. It highlights all of these things. Yet, whenever this came out, which was my junior year of high school, so 2013, it had a massive influence on our culture. It had stars like Leonardo DiCaprio, Matthew McConaughey, Jonah Hill, Margot Robbie, all playing main roles. It grossed $400 million at the box office. It won five awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Supporting Actor. It inspired a song that maybe many of you have heard by the title of Jordan Belfort by a guy who I'm unsure of his name because it was kind of a one-hit wonder. Uh, And it took this 
this knowledge and this atmosphere of uh, trading stocks and like living in the fast lane and things like that to something that was known and that you know people did, and it kind of moved it to the space where average people like us can kind of dabble in it. We get to see an inside look at that life. We get to get on things like Robin Hood and have trade stocks and like make money and get those little hits of dopamine whenever you do it. It utterly changed the culture. It made Jordan Belfort go from a guy who only finance nerds knew about to a guy that every fraternity guy in America knows about. It completely changed the culture. The Wolf of Wall Street is literally one of the most popular movies that the U.S. has ever made. And it sheds life or sheds light on all of these things that I just mentioned. But it was partially meant to be a sobering film. Uh, like it, it shows just insane things to, to really paint some, some picture and paint some, um, or give some pictures, some color as to, hey, this is like real. This is part of our culture in America in the West where we have the ability to, to run after big things, especially wealth. And it gives a lot of warning by what you see and some of the consequences that are in the movie of living that way, of giving your life to things like this. And yet, even though it is meant to be sobering in some ways, we as a culture just generally just elevated it. I mean, awards... This is good, even in the midst of all the evil that's done in the movie, and it became something to be emulated. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that a movie like this of a portrayal of real lifestyles became something that's so popular, became something that, that is things that people make songs to and we make more movies of, and, and we kind of try to dabble in that lifestyle or even chase after it if we get the chance? John Mark Comer is an author, a pastor, and a teacher up in the Portland, Oregon area, and he wrote a book called Live No Lies. And he says this in his book, the devil's primary stratagem to drive the soul and society into ruin is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires, which are normalized in sinful society. What he's saying is that the devil, Satan, the spiritual forces of darkness, one of their primary strategies to derail people, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, from beginning to follow the way of God is through lies. It's through false realities. This is the primary strategy. And one of the greatest lies that permeates our culture is a lie that is very much encapsulated in the Wolf of Wall Street theme. And it's a lie of self-exaltation. It's a lie of, I know better. I am better. I am superior. I know what I want and what I deserve, and I should get it when I want it. It's wrapped up in all kinds of themes, and it's, it's been that way since the beginning. If you go read Genesis 1 through 3, the story of God creating everything, including us, and giving us, us a special purpose and a role to play with him, what happened? The devil threw a lie out in front of us. And he said, actually, God's lying to you. He doesn't want you to have abundant life. He actually is afraid that if you don't trust him, you will become like him. So why don't you just go do your own thing? And we bought into the lie. 
And the hard thing is, is that lies like this, especially one that gets, that gets blown up and is as fun and sexy looking as a Wolf of Wall Street self-exaltation lie, is that from the outside, from watching a movie or in popular media or maybe somebody that you know, but from a distance, it kind of looks like it works. Like it kind of looks like you can live a good life if you chase after that. But it's not true. It's not reality. It's a lie. And this can be a really hard atmosphere for for us as followers of Jesus to live in. If that's around us all the time and we're experiencing that type of, uh, of unrighteousness and lack of the way that God has designed us to live, it can make it very hard to live. And our culture, unfortunately, is saturated with it. But we're not unique in that. Cultures since the beginning have been saturated and it just looks a little different. And James, as we get into the fifth chapter tonight, is going to shed light on this reality and specifically this lie. And then he's going to tell believers how we ought to deal with it. So he's gonna give us a reality and he's gonna give us a response. And it's all in the theme of what we've been looking at throughout the letter of James. It's believers who face hardships and trials and we count those as joy and we figure out how to press through those while staying faithful to God. This is in that same theme and he addresses a very specific lie and a very specific circumstance that gets played out. So we're gonna be in James chapter five, verses one through 11 tonight. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip through there. It'll be on the screen. Uh, But if you wanna mark it up, make notes in your Bible, please do that as well. We'll dive right in. First, the reality. James is gonna give us a reality to be aware of and to chew on. He starts in verse one. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Now, I want you guys to look first off. When he says you rich people, he is not just saying you people who have wealth. It's not just a generally, hey, if you're rich, this should be the case for you. He Remember, he's writing a letter to a very specific group of people, and within this group of people, there's an even more specific group of people that he's addressing. They're rich, and they've gained riches through immoral and evil ways, and they use it to oppress people, which we're going to see that. So those are the people that he's addressing. It's not just general wealth. It's specifically these, I call, I call it wicked rich people. Remember he says rich people, you wicked rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Why, why would they do that? Why would they need to be weeping and wailing because of misery? Well, he gives us all of the reasons as to why. First off, your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And so the first evil that these people have committed is that they've basically just given their lives to materialism. They're just gaining and hoarding all kinds of things. And it says, and James says that, hey, because you have done this, because you have not trusted God, you have not lived contently with him, but you've pursued all these other things, those things will t- are testifying against you. And so that's judgment language. There, there is a righteous and just judgment that is gonna come on these specific people for living this way. That's the first evil. Second one that he gives, he says, look, the wages that you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters, they've reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. The second thing that they have done is that 
seemingly they own land, so which makes them very wealthy. They have a business and agriculture, and they have hired people to mow their fields or to, to cut and bring in their crops. But instead of giving them the wages that they agreed upon, they didn't pay them anything. And so in order to make more money for themselves, they basically defrauded their workers. Similarly to Wolf of Wall Street, defrauding his clients. Defrauding workers is the second evil that he specifically mentions. The third one, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. So he says, hey, y'all have lived in excess wealth and resource. You have continued to gather in and get as much as possible, specifically in a time where there are people all around you who have no resources. There are people who are not making it day to day. They are literally dying at this current moment because they don't have any resources. And instead of stewarding your resources well, as God has designed it to bless them and to sustain them, you've committed an injustice and you have not done that. And people's lives are ruined and they've perished because of it. It's the third evil that James is pointing out. The last one, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Condemned and murdered the innocent one in some capacity. He's not specific here, but there is innocence and righteousness that's being oppressed via, they kill them. Uh, they condemn them. They say, hey, you're guilty of this thing you're actually not guilty of, and then they kill them for it. Sounds kind of familiar. It's an injustice in order to get rid of people for selfish gain. Now, I want you all to just imagine seeing and experiencing what we just read. Like, if it was literally verbatim what James just described, imagine living in a context where, like, that, that's happening all around you, and maybe that's even happening to you. What kind of emotions start to creep up a little bit if you feel like that is happening? Or if you think about the fact that there are places in the world where to a T, this does happen on a daily basis. Do you get angry at the people who are committing these injustices? Do you get sad that people are losing their lives and their lives are being ruined at the hands of people who abuse their wealth and their power? Maybe, maybe you feel kind of, kind of angry at God. It's like, why would you let that happen? Like, that sounds horrible. Whatever the response is, I imagine you're probably thinking, somebody should do something about that. I would be if I was in that situation. Like, if I saw this playing out, especially if it was happening to me, I'm like, who is going to fix this? Because it needs to be fixed. God tells believers that he is going to do something about this. And in fact, he hates injustice. And anything that gets specifically mentioned, he definitely hates it. And he's going to move forward and talk about how we are going to deal with that. And this is exactly why those miseries that they should be weeping and wailing about are gonna come upon them because God hates this type of injustice. But I want us to look at these four specific things that James mentions here. He says, you've hoarded wealth, you failed to pay wages, uh, you lived in on the earth in luxury, and then you've condemned and murdered the innocent one. These are, to a T, specific disobediences against commands that Jesus and God the Father in the Old Testament gives people. Look with me. In Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy. It's almost verbatim. 
Like James is literally just saying, you literally did the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Next one. In Leviticus, God says this, do not hold back the wages of the hired worker overnight. Holding back wages, defrauding workers, explicitly commanded to not do. Next one. Jesus tells a parable in Luke about this guy who's a rich man. He's described as rich and that he lived lavishly while he was on earth, but now he's in Hades or the realm of the dead and he's in torment because he lived like that. It's exactly what these guys in James are being called out for. And then finally in Acts, after Jesus ascends after his resurrection and the beginnings of the church is happening and Peter steps out in boldness and proclaims the first mass gospel message to thousands of people, he says this about those who killed Jesus. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. The pinnacle model for condemning and murdering the innocent one was that people did this to Jesus. These guys that James is addressing here, they did the exact thing that God says, hey, this is not how people are to live. If you notice a similarity in all these things, an underlying theme is the lie that we started out with. There's a lie of self-exaltation that has caused all of these injustices and evils that these people have committed. This is just one example. Uh, Wealth, the accumulation of wealth in immoral ways and and the abuse of wealth or power, especially against people who can't really do anything about it. But this could play out in all kinds of ways. Uh, You think about just generally the abuse of status or power. Maybe you guys have seen that or experienced it. Maybe you've uh, seen it in work, if you work full-time. Unfortunately, you have a manager a boss, maybe somebody who owns a company, and they use their status and their ability to hire, to fire, to to do whatever in order to make sure nobody gets near taking their job or just to make sure that everybody feels smaller than them. Maybe you felt that exact same thing, but in in other scenarios in life. Maybe maybe you felt it in family. It's gonna be really hard. Maybe you felt it amongst friendships. Maybe you've had friendships where it's more contractual, it's more based on convenience than it is self-sacrifice because it is self-exaltation. Maybe you felt it in school with people that you're doing um, projects with or if you've had a professor or a teacher back in the day who has demonstrated a a type of self-exaltation, even just small hints of it. If you think long enough, we can all think of scenarios where this has played out. And whether it's as grotesque as what James is rebuking these guys for, or if it's as small as something that we're tempted to do, or that we've experienced, or somewhere in the middle, self-exaltation is the lie. And it's, a, and it's one of the biggest lies because when we do this, we either knowingly reject God and just push him out of the picture, Or we kind of passively just forget his presence. We forget that he has written a better way of life to follow. We forget the fact that, hey, he's going to return to be with people and to bring justice to all scenarios in life. The lie of self-exaltation that's so easy to believe and it permeates all cultures, especially ours, is one of forgetting God. And so James gives us this warning. He paints this reality for us, both for the wicked that he addresses in this text so that they would understand their reality in the midst of all of their success and lavishness. And so hopefully that they would repent 
but then also for believers. Because it is believers and the righteous that whenever we live in a context or a culture where this is true, it can make it very hard to follow Jesus. And so the challenge is don't believe the lie and don't stop, or don't, yeah, don't stop trusting Jesus. So this is the reality that he gives us. And then it feels like there's this hard shift into a response for believers. And that's the very next section. Before we get into it, I want you guys to think about something. Has there ever been something that you have wanted really badly, but you've had to wait on it? Like you're like, man, I want this to happen or I feel like this should happen, but it's just not happening right now for whatever reason. And so you just have to wait. It could be something as simple or as a weekly basis as you want Chick-fil-A and you cruise down to MLK to go get some Chick-fil-A and you happen to roll up to, a, to the light on MLK in Arkansas and the line's backed up to the freaking light and you have to wait the entire time in order to get your Chick-fil-A. It could be something as simple as that. It could be something as significant as what I experienced my senior year of high school. My senior year of high school, I had to wait on something that bothered me a ton. And it was the fact that my junior year of high school, whenever we played our rivals, who were the Gentry Pioneers, if anybody knows anything about Gentry and Gravit and the rivalry that we have. uh, Wow, yeah, somebody knows what Gentry's all. Okay, cool, love that. Um, Yeah, mid-tier 4A football in Arkansas was a big deal, okay? And these rivalries, rivalries were important to us. My junior year, we were not great at football. Being straight up, we were not great. And for the first time in a very long time, we lost to Gentry. We played them at their place and we got smoked. And it was a really bad look. The upperclassmen on our team, they had kind of a bad attitude about the team. And me and my friends who are all juniors were kind of frustrated about it. And we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this just happened. And the only thing that we thought about for an entire calendar year was when we were gonna get to play them again because we were sick and tired. Even the day after it happened of hearing all these guys that we knew who played for Gentry talking smack about how much better they were than us and how horribly we played against them. And we waited for an entire year enduring all the trash talk by these people that we felt were inferior to us based on our record. We endured all the hardships of two-a-days coming around in the, uh, in the summer and going into the fall. We experienced playing all these teams leading up to playing Gentry our senior year. And finally, the last home game, senior night, we get to play Gentry. But it doesn't stop there because there's this organization that, again, thinks that 4A football in high school is really cool. And they're like, hey, we're going to pick a rivalry every year to highlight. And you get a trophy, basically, if you win. And they put it on the news and all kinds of stuff. And they picked our rivalry this year. And so Gentry comes to our place. They strap up their pads. And we go to war with Gentry. And all my friends are waiting to exact vengeance that is due for them showing us up the year before. And we ended up beating them 40 to zero, mind you. And I got the taste of victory that I had deeply desired. Not only did I get a taste of victory, we got the taste of this sweet trophy. This was the highlight of my high school. So me and my boys, we had that trophy. I don't know where it went after that. Uh, we, I think we for sure took it to a party after that. Um, But we had to wait for this, and we had to endure a lot of hardship, and we had to be very patient as we listened to people talk smack to us. 
That's a silly example, but there are more serious examples. Uh, earlier this week, I read an article about a leader of kind of the underground church in Iran, and he got arrested, and they got taken into custody. He was missing for a little bit until a sentence came out. And because he was leading an underground church and was, in a sense, lying to the government, uh, he's current, currently sentenced to 10 years in prison in Iran. And then after he gets out, there's 10 years of social exile, uh, which basically means that once he gets out, he's not allowed to get a job. He's not allowed to be reaffiliated with any formal organizations that he previously was. Uh, he's basically ostracized from the culture. And so he can't work. He can't provide food for his family, for himself. And it's because he follows Jesus in a culture that very much does not like that. He is having to demonstrate legitimate endurance, patience. He's having to trust God. And this is exactly what, G, uh, what James says that believers must do in response to this. In response to the section that we just read, believers are to patiently endure until the Lord's return. We're to patiently endure until the Lord's return. James continues. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters. So his immediate response is in light of what what we just said, believers, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient. He continues in verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets for example. We are to be patient because patience means that we desire something, does it not? If we have to be patient for something, we are desiring an outcome for something to happen, but it's not happening yet. And so we have to wait. We desire to see Jesus fully. We desire for all the wrongs in the world and the suffering to be made right, but it hasn't happened fully yet. And so we be patient. But we don't just be patient, we patiently endure. He continues, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Down in verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and saw what the Lord finally brought about. Uh, Job, uh, it's actually a book in the Old Testament. You should go read it if you haven't. It's wild, and it's an example of somebody who endured extreme suffering in the midst of kind of having everything originally and him enduring in different ways through it and the Lord keeping him and seeing what God did in his situation. We patiently endure. Enduring might be the hardest part because if you have to endure something, that means it's very hard. There is some type of hardship that's coming at us. Whenever people around you are not walking with God, don't have any care to to live righteously, to live faithfully to God, and you're trying to, and they're having success, or you're on the the brunt end of being oppressed or pushed back on in some way because of it, that is really hard. Again, how does that feel whenever you experience that, or if you know somebody who has experienced that? It can be very easy to say, you know what, I don't wanna do this anymore. This isn't worth it. I want the success that these people are getting. I'm angry at them. I'm angry at the rest of all these other people I'm trying to do this with because it seems like they're not helping. I'm angry at God. Why is this happening? Living righteously in an unrighteous 
world is very hard and we have to endure. Have you ever experienced hardships while trying to follow Jesus, just in general? Think about that for a second. Have you ever experienced legitimate hardships that were emotionally painful? I know I have, and I have a lot of friends who have. There's a guy who's just a couple years younger than me uh, who early on in college, uh, he started trying to faithfully follow Jesus and he was at a party with some of his friends and he got put basically out in the middle of everybody and ridiculed publicly in front of a lot of people because he was deciding to abstain from drinking because he had previously had a problem with it. And he got dogged on the entire time he was at this place with people who had previously called him his friend because he had chose to follow Jesus and how he handled alcohol. I have another friend uh, who was in Greek life and he got kicked out of living in his house because he started walking with God. He started telling others about Jesus. People's lives started changing. They started experiencing abundant life, but it started impacting the party culture that the house had. It was, it was, it was that to that degree that the gospel was going out and people started following Jesus. And the guys who were on the house said, hey, you can't live here anymore. We don't want our culture to be impacted like that, so you have to leave. But he endured and he kept following Jesus. I have a friend who uh, is quite a bit older than me, owns a company here in Fayetteville, a really successful businessman. And he told me a story one time of a business deal he went out to Colorado to do with some people. And it was like one of the biggest ones that he'd gotten contracted to do, and he does packaging. And when he got out there, they basically showed him the print for the packaging that they were gonna do, and he had to sign off for it. And the print, for whatever reason, it was like a joke thing, was like very sexually explicit. Uh, it was raunchy, it was just not great. And he, being a committed follower of Jesus, was like, that is not God-honoring, and I'm not going to promote and create something that would basically bring dishonor to God. And so he said, hey, I know we've gotten this far, but I'm out, like I'm not printing this. And he got laughed out of that office, out of doing business with that company and with a lot of other companies because he was patiently enduring the unrighteousness of the world while trying to live righteously. If you follow Jesus, even as you experience abundant life, life greater than anything I'd experienced before following Jesus for a fact, it can be hard and it will be hard. Jesus promises that it will be hard because if we follow him, he has chose us out of the world. And if we were of the world, the world would love us, but because we're not, the world hates us just like it hated him. We have to endure. And finally, we patiently endure to specifically the Lord's return. It's all over this. Until the Lord's return, the Lord is coming near, the judge, Jesus, is standing at the door, what the Lord finally brought about. This is what we're patiently enduring. This is the hope that we have as believers, that as we endure the hardships of the world, Jesus is making all things right, and he will completely do that eventually. And he ends the canon of Scripture with this same message in Revelation 22. Read it with me. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates to the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Jesus says these things. I'm coming soon. I'm returning. Each person is gonna get what 
is, is deserved of them, whether they choose to follow me or whether they choose to continue to rebel against the good God. He says, blessed are the ones who wash their robes, are the ones who trust and begin faithfully following Jesus. You're, you're made pure through that. And because of that, you have the right to eternal life with God and you get to dwell with him in relationship in his city. He says outside of that city, so outside of the presence of God, he says it's, it's the dogs. This is a common idiom used to describe people who are basically outside the blessing of God. And it's because they continued practicing their ways of life that are just in rebellion to God. They didn't take God up on his loving kindness of his compassion and mercy, which is the very thing that James ends this section with. The Lord is compassionate and full of mercy. The only way that we can faithfully endure until the Lord's return is because of this, because he is compassionate and faithful and merciful. There's no way we could do it without him. The author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus who from sinners suffered such hostility against himself that we would not grow weary and faint-hearted in following him. We're supposed to look to him as the example of the one who endured everything and more that we possibly could, knowing that if he did, we as his followers and him being faithful to us will do the same. The fact that God is uh, compassionate and merciful, the statement this is also an invitation for, for anyone in here or anyone who reads this or anyone who gets the chance to hear what we call the gospel from somebody who knows Jesus, this is the open invitation that for all of us, because we just naturally rebel against God, we naturally place self above everything else, we have relationally separated ourselves from him. But because God is loving and merciful, he, he didn't just want his pinnacle of creation to go by the wayside and become completely corrupt and forgotten. He said, no, I want to continue dwelling with my people. And so throughout history, he's worked out what he calls a plan of redemption to redeem us back into relationship with him. And he does it in the pinnacle of the gospel message, which is that whenever we couldn't do it ourselves, he took on our nature. In all experiences that we have had, being born, growing up, facing challenges to learn, facing temptation. He's done all those things. And while he did it, he stayed faithful to God every step of the way, never was self above the will of the Father. But the innocent one was condemned. He was murdered and he did die. But that was part of the plan because in his death and then being resurrected from the dead, he took care of sin's most powerful weapon, which is death. And that anybody who says, hey, Jesus, I believe you and everything that you say, and I'm gonna faithfully follow you, I'm gonna bend my knee to you, you're the king, I'm gonna be loyal to you, and I trust that you did all of this for me, we're united to him. And so every status that he has, every blessing that he has, we also have. And it is a literal acceptance of the invitation to come and follow me. That is the lovingness, the compassion, and the mercy that God, or that James ends this with. That is the God that rules the universe, and that's the God that we serve. That's the reality, that's the response, but how do we do that practically? How do we practically, patiently endure until the Lord's coming 
You gotta know yourself, know your context. When and where and how are the ways that you get tempted to to fall into that lie of, of self above everything else, of the way of the world versus the way of Jesus. We have to be aware of it. And then we have to remember reality. We have to remember that God is coming, that he is returning, he's making all things new, that death and destruction comes with living opposite of God's direction. And he's not going to fail in any promise that he's made us. And so we remember that truth. We also crush the lies with the truth. We have to become aware of all the lies, not just the self-exaltation lie, so that we can point them out and we can say, I'm not going that way. I'm crushing that lie and I'm gonna go the better way. And finally, we gotta find people to endure this together. We gotta have friends who are doing this with us. Uh, We have to surround ourselves with people who can mentor us, who can engage in discipleship relationships so that we can learn from people who have gone before us how to endure patiently for the Lord. Whenever you consider relationships, people that you're gonna date, marry, they should be pushing you closer to God in this capacity. These are just a few ways that we can practically take steps to responding to what James has said, hey, this is a reality, and this is good news because God is loving and patient and kind. The Wolf of Wall Street, it ends uh, kind of incredibly, actually. There's this massive arrest scene. All the people who committed all these crimes get arrested. They get taken uh, to prison. Jordan Belfort specifically gets sentenced to three years in prison. After he gets out of prison, he ends up going to work for an organization that kind of tells his story, but then he teaches all these sales skills that he has. And the final scene of The Wolf of Wall Street is Jordan, post-prison, post-kind of getting his life back together after he loses everything, money, status, business, family, everything. And he is engaging with normal people, doing normal life, trying to get better at their normal sales job. And he's doing this iconic line that was at the beginning of the movie where he's teaching them the laws of supply and demand and selling. And you're like, oh man, he's doing it again. And as he keeps teaching people, the camera pans from him on the front row, teaching all these people away from him, out to this mid-sized crowd of really normal looking people, not lavish, not wealthy, not the people that the whole movie's filled with, not the insanity that the whole movie's filled with but normal people, and it zooms in on just a couple of rows. And you see these people who are contently learning from somebody who's really good at their job, who's adding value to their life. And the music and the mood changes from insanity and the immorality to this is a better life. Though this other life that's been presented this entire movie is fast and wild and sexy, It was destructive, and it's actually not better. The better life is one that is reality. It's one that rejects the lie, and it's an incredible end to the movie because it clues you in on the lesson that we're supposed to learn. Not to fall into the lie. God gives us a better way. James alludes to it. You keep reading the Gospels, you're gonna see it. Jesus invites us to follow him. And so I wanna ask if you will do the same with me to follow Jesus on the better way. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us truth. Thank you for giving us the ability to identify what is 
not real, what is not as you have designed it, and that we can experience abundant life. Lord, I pray that you would empower us wherever we're at, whether we're following you, whether we haven't committed to following you faithfully yet, that you would show us that goodness that we can taste and see. And we can see that whenever we patiently endure for your coming, we experience incredible life in the midst of hardship. And that one day there will be no more hardship. And that is the hope that which we cling to. So help us believe that and help us live that. Amen.